Hi, and welcome to Inglewood Presbyterian Church in Kirkland, Washington. We are a church for the neighborhood. Whether you're a local neighbor or from far away, all are welcome here. We are pleased to present to you our weekly Sunday sermons. Our head pastor is James Cuman, and you can find more information about us on our website at inglewoodpc.org. This story from the book of Acts is one of my favorites. Peter's speech is great, but what I especially enjoy, it just makes me laugh every time I think of it or read it again, that after Peter's speech to these religious leaders, they perceive that Peter and John are ordinary men who've been with Jesus, but they're, they're so ordinary apart from the fact that they've now been with Jesus and, and they're different now. It's always, it just makes me laugh and it's always encouraging that that's what happens when any of us ordinary people spend time with Jesus. He begins to do extraordinary things through us. Telly Harrison and I got to know each other through, uh, goodness, almost three and a half weeks at on two different trips in the country of Colombia. We were visiting, again, both those years, our church partners there, and we are super privileged to have him help us explore this passage in Acts 4 today. Let's, let's pray for, for him and the word preached that our hearts would be changed. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, you're the extraordinary one. You're the one we look to, not to us, not to us, but to your name be glory, Lord Jesus. And we look to you to renew us, to empower us, to equip us, to love well, love you, love each other, love this world in your name. And all these things we pray in your name. Amen. The next day the elders, rulers, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. 
Hello, everyone. Good to be with you today and to share this word with you. Please join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful to be here today and to have the opportunity to share the word of God with your people. Uh, we ask that you will be present as um, we deliver the word of God. May our hearts be um, fed by you, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the ideas I have followed closely over the last few weeks is the concept in our American jurisprudence uh, system described as beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, this week in particular, I spent the time listening intently to definitions of the burden of proof in criminal proceedings and how the idea of beyond a reasonable doubt works. Uh, and this is obviously for those of you who uh, have been watching about the um, Officer Chauvin trial of George Floyd. And so I just kind of in my own way started to peruse um, and kind of discover, learn more about what beyond a reasonable doubt means. Uh, I discovered that the term beyond a reasonable doubt is not in the constitution. Instead, the idea comes from how we have operationalized our system of justice. Uh, juries must convict uh, someone in criminal proceedings when the evidence reaches to the level of beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, it is considered the highest burden of proof in our system of justice. Um, a quick review of legal scholars soon had my head spinning though. Um, and uh, not because the premise is necessarily difficult to understand, but rather, uh, it, I guess what I've learned is that the uh, lawyers and judges also find it difficult to understand as well. Um, one way of thinking about it is that if I were, I, I learned this example from a judge, if I if I drive my car to work and um, I park my car in a particular spot with a particular mileage at a particular uh, kind of gas gauge, right? It's half a tank and I go and work all day and then I come back out and I'm about to drive it home it's, and it's still there and still in the same space and it still has the same mileage. Um, it is reasonable for me to suspect that the car never moved. Um, Unless I had evidence that a tow truck came, picked it up, drove it around town and dropped it right back in the same spot with the same gas mileage and the same amount of mileage. It would be unreasonable if I had no evidence to, to assume that, right? So the basic premise then is for the state, which has the burden of proof to prove the case beyond reasonable doubt. Said differently, the government has to remove significant level of doubt based on the evidence provided. Jurors may have unreasonable doubts, as I said in my example, but that is not the type of doubt that must be addressed. Um, again, the state just has this burden of proof to remove reasonable doubt. It's in uh, the context for me thinking about this is actually Acts chapter four, verses five through 12, our scripture reading for today. Uh, in our text today, Peter and John are sharing the good news about Jesus and those words um, that they are speaking become threatening to the powerful. Um, Peter and John had just experienced the first healing miracles by the apostles after the resurrection of Jesus in the previous chapter. 
And in this healing of the one who was unable to walk becomes the pretext for two sermons. Uh, in the first sermon, Peter, the spokesperson of the couple, argues that the Israelites, um, the ones really standing right in front of him at the time he's speaking, should believe on Jesus. Why? Because it is in Jesus's name that this man has been healed by the resurrected one. Even though Jesus is not here anymore, he's not present in the physical body, Peter argues it was foretold that he would suffer for their sake and that these believers were the heirs to the promise of Abraham. That is, if they were to believe, they would be the heirs to the promise of Abraham. Peter is now making these historical and theological connection, connections of Jesus's teaching and preaching really for the very first time in the hearing of these people. Peter's evidence then that, uh, that he uses in this moment uh, in the, the, the chapter three text, the chapter three sermon, is um, this man standing before you, this once um, uh, crippled, un, uh, physically disabled person is now walking around and he is evidence that in the name of Jesus or by the power of Jesus, this person is now walking and he refers to now this, uh, to Jesus as the resurrected savior, that the resurrected savior is responsible and it is in that savior's name that this man is walking. So Peter uses as evidence that the person who was not walking before is now walking is, is the evidence, that this is the evidence of the resurrected savior. Uh, in Peter's sermon then, after, uh, in Peter's second sermon after the day of Pentecost, which is in chapter four, um, verse five through 12, Peter and John were sharing with the people again, and there was concern about um, these messages that they were preaching. It had reached to a level of concern for the priest captain of the temple and the guards of the Sadducees, that Peter and John were then confronted and imprisoned by them to keep them from speaking to the people any further, right? The next day following though their imprisonment, the elders and legal scholars along with the high priest family came to Jerusalem and they had Peter and John brought before them for questioning. They asked them, they questioned them and said, under what authority or power or what name do you do this? The next five verses, um, is what I call the second sermon given by Peter, was so bold and filled with confidence that the Bible says the council was caught by surprise by the confidence with which Peter and John spake. After all, the text says, they were uneducated and inexperienced. Well, what were they so bold about that it caught the attention of the ruling leaders and elders and those from Jerusalem. What were, what was it about their argument that made them so bold? What evidence did Peter provide that really moved them? I asked this in response, not just kind of in, in the historical sense of the text, but I am often today moved by a generation that struggles to believe what it hears. 
a generation that struggles to believe what it sees, a generation that struggles to believe um, what is happening right in front of it. In many ways, we have become a conspiratorial generation where we don't even know sometimes. It's at least the way it's argued, right? We don't even know sometimes if what we're seeing is real. Well, let's ask, answer that question or peruse that a little bit more, but let's do that through then Peter's perspective of his life. I would like to answer that from that perspective, right? Because Peter's the one preaching the text. In his response to the lawyers, Peter then lays out um, the argument which sought to evidence um, that the crucified Jesus is the resurrected Jesus and is now the chief cornerstone. So Peter pulls the evidence together and really only pulls one piece of evidence. Jesus Christ is risen. And he says, this rejected Jesus, this rejected person is now the chief cornerstone, which is a description of the first piece of, the, of a stone building from which all other structures of the building are connected to. It lays the direction, it lays the course, it lays the foundation. In other words, all of salvation, Peter argues, and all the Godhead is tied into this resurrected savior. There may be other people named Jesus. There may be uh, others who have power and others who have authority uh, in others' name, but Peter and John draw upon this resurrected one, the one who was put into a tomb, the one who claimed to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who was persecuted, the one who suffered, the one who died, and the one who is risen, Peter says, the evidence for which he would bring to the court is the resurrected Jesus. But let's think about this a little bit more because as I said, from Peter's story, there is much information to be, uh, to be gleaned from, much, much knowledge to be gleaned from this story. Uh, there is definitely more to the sermon for Peter, right? Remember, this is the same Peter who denied Jesus three times as Jesus was being persecuted and crucified. And this is the same Peter who sank as he tried to walk towards Jesus on the water, but because of his own doubt began to sink. sink. For Peter, there was a time in his life where the evidence provided in Jesus's life did not reach to the level of reasonable, of removing doubt. Peter could have preached about these moments and many more. Peter could have preached about these, these moments from the perspective of the time he saw Jesus feed the 5,000, or he could have preached as evidence the time that Jesus prayed for the sick and they recovered, or he wrote how he prayed for Lazarus to be risen again and Lazarus came out of the grave. Or maybe the best evidence was uh, that Peter could have drew upon was Jesus's many teachings. Or when Peter was asked by Jesus, who do men say that I, the son of man am? And, 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 and Peter says uh, 
that it you are the crucified Christ. This is, you are the risen, excuse me, you are her, um, the son of the living God. And, and in that moment, it is Jesus who says, um, flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but, but my father, which is in heaven, hath revealed to you, the heaven hath revealed this to you. Right? Peter could have used that as evidence, but he doesn't. Instead, instead of using those pieces of evidence, which he could have referenced at any point in time in his sermon, Peter chooses one piece of evidence. Peter's response is that it's the resurrected savior who is the only evidence that I need to prove that there is salvation in no other but Jesus. He argues this to the lawyers that it is this resurrected Christ that is the foundation to his message, to his sermon, to his now life. Peter does not um, reach for those other things as the highest level of proof. Instead, Peter, the one who had his own doubts, argues that the highest level of proof that is beyond a reasonable doubt is the resurrected Savior. It is uh, Jürgen Moltmann, the theologian in Introduction to Christian Theology, one of his books, he expresses the necessity of the resurrection of Jesus as an event in history, um, but not just any event in history, any, a, a particular event of history. He argues um, that the resurrection gave birth to the church, the gospels and the entire Christian faith. Jürgen Moltmann argues that the Christian faith is a resurrected faith, right? Not Easter then becomes more than just a moment, a day, in time that we celebrate in the calendar, it becomes more than a set of events uh, on that particular day. In fact, the resurrected faith becomes the resurrected life when we think about the resurrection as the key fundamental um, reality of the Christian faith. Jürgen Moltmann goes on to say, and I quote, the efficacy of the Christian faith is dependent upon the reality of Jesus's being resurrected from the dead by God. We have indeed reason to regard the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 seriously. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain as well. With all historical assurance, we can say that save for Easter, there would have been no New Testament letters written, no gospels compiled, no prayers offered in Jesus's name and no church. For at the very heart of the early church's preaching stands the word about the author of life whom God raised from the dead, unquote. Well, that leads me to ask what authority informs our faith? Is it the one raised from the dead? What evidence do we have? It is still the resurrected savior as the best evidence of our salvation. What has removed all doubt? Is it uh, one nation under God? Is it the prosperity of resources and the freedom to worship? Is it the profound teachings and intelligence within our 
church community and our seminarians and our theologians. No, there is no better evidence than the resurrected savior. There is no greater evidence the Christian faith can provide greater than the resurrection. Well, in the closing arguments of the trial of Derek Chauvin, this idea of no better evidence became more clear to me. The prosecuting attorney referred to all the expert witnesses, all of the um, 43 different or 45 different witnesses, save one. A little nine-year-old girl with a t-shirt that said love, who was on her way to get candy and stood on the sidewalk during the entire event. Of all those brought to the jury with years of education and experience, pulmonologist, a cardiologist, a toxicologist, chief of police, uh, and 43 more witnesses. But the lawyer in the closing remarks referred to the confidence of one little nine-year-old girl, uneducated, inexperienced little girl that the attorney referenced as one of the greatest witnesses. As she stood on the side of the road, she uttered these words, get off of him. And the attorney referenced the little girl's words and saying that if she could see, what a powerful thing happening if she could see, then surely we can believe what we're seeing. If we can believe in the resurrected savior in a world that struggles to believe what it sees, things right in front of our face, right in front of television, right in front, just all the things that we now have skepticism about a skeptical world, the, the one thing we must hold firm to, the one thing that must always be beyond a reasonable doubt is that our faith is built on the resurrected savior, that we have a resurrected savior who is alive today and if we can hold on to that kind, may we, that kind of faith, may we all be a witness today of the resurrected savior. God bless you.